Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting programme of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the 18th guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is contemporary artist Julia Ellen Lancaster. Julia Ellen Lancaster works with clay, minerals and rocks, some spanning millions of years of the rock cycle, excavated from different geological sites. The sculptures she makes include salvaged detritus and fragments rejected from previous incarnations, reused and reassembled. The materials chosen offer a connection to the past, marking and capturing a sense of embedded time. Many of her works are fired to extreme heat, often repeatedly, to create forms that investigate the relationship between humans and the landscape, seen as connected and interchangeable. Some works are, however, left unfired, risking their eventual swifter demise. In doing so, these works only exist as a digital footprint, their beauty residing in their temporary status, their instability and their transience, so challenging us to find beauty in the different, the unrecognisable and the impermanent. Julia and I met in Liminal Gallery and she shared her Instagram account with me, but I realised I was already following her. Her often organic-looking forms are both familiar and alien, often miraculously defying gravity. Her experimental use of glazes give a rich and tactile texture which are endlessly alluring. This is ceramics, but not as you know it, as she employs play and trial and error to create unique and new ways of technicality. Julia Ellen Lancaster graduated from NMA, Environmental Media, at the Royal College of Art. Following a short time spent in Tokyo, she was selected to undertake a residency in St. Ives, UK in 2020 as part of the Bernard Leach and Shoji Hamada Pottery Cenotary celebrations in partnership with Porthmere Studios. In 2021, she was awarded a residency with Leach Pottery. She currently teaches in a professional ceramics studio in the southeast coast, as well as teaching drawing at the Art Academy in London. Since 2022, Lancaster has also run a series of seminars, Clay in Conversation, in partnership with Ceramic Research Centre at the University of Westminster. Julia Ellen Lancaster, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you very much for having me, Louise. Thanks. And thanks for that introduction. It's very good, very comprehensive. Excellent. In your intro, I mentioned that you dig your own clay, which is so fascinating. How did you start this process? How do you find your digging spots and how can you tell good quality clay? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess I really started digging clay or it was initiated by affordability of making work, you know, using materials that are affordable and that you can find yourself also, I mean, I've always loved playing with mud and getting my <laughs> getting my hands dirty and being in a landscape is a place where I feel very comfortable. And I was thinking about ways to 
make work from a clay that I could source with my own hands. And I really discovered it wasn't so hard to find clay. I mean, of course, in London, the entire city is built on clay. So you only have to walk down the road and find some kind of excavation work going on, of which, of course, in London, there is a lot and you will see clay or you will come across clay, whether it's a telecommunications company digging up a hole or it's excavation for a building site. They're not going down very far and uh, you will see clay. Elsewhere, it's a case of really looking at geological maps and simply when you're out in the landscape and, and really taking notice of the place where you are and there are some places that you're more likely to find it such as near rivers or maybe along the coastline where it's been exposed due to erosion and then really it's a case of looking at it closely and feeling it for any plasticity to gauge how well it might hold together or if it just has too much sand content for example you do I think learn from experience of doing it and most importantly from then washing and processing and testing the clay by exposing it to heat it's not always the quality of the clay that is the most interesting thing because that's a variable I suppose but the colour is the sometimes the thing that is the beauty of it and you can get this kind of whole range of beautiful colours from native clay or wild clay it might look when you first dig it and you think it has some clay in it it might look very grey and dull and it's only when you fire it to a certain temperature and you have to be fairly cautious about firing it to certain temperatures because if you fire it too high it will just simply melt and also completely ruin your kiln potentially at the same time. And the colour can be extraordinary once you've fired it. You get these kind of very beautiful, deep, rich red colours and yellow kind of okra colours. So it's really a case of testing it and seeing whether it will work as a clay that you want to work with. I have several questions from what you said. <laughs> First of all, you just mentioned that if you fire it too much, it will melt and ruin the kiln. How do you know? I mean, do you have to do like a little test to see the firing temperature first of all? Yeah, I mean, ideally you test small bits of it. You can do things to protect your kiln, like you use something called a sagger or a kiln tray, which kind of protects your shelves and the walls of the kiln. And then it's really a case of firing it to, you know, what might be a relatively safe temperature that you kind of feel confident nothing is going to go too awry. And then kind of gradually creeping up with the temperature, you get an idea of how far you can take it quite quickly. You can sort of increase the temperature in steps. But if, you know, it's difficult if you... You don't really want to be doing that in a big kiln because you don't really want to be firing a big kiln for lots of small pieces that don't fill the kiln because you are then wasting electricity and cost of, you know, firing a kiln. So, yeah, so it's quite a kind of lengthy process, but it is something that you learn from experience. You can gauge or you can get an idea of how much of a clay content the material has and you know how well it will perform and then you also mentioned about sand content does that mean that then it just won't solidify in the way that you wanted it to it can do sometimes yeah and sometimes it just means that there's so much sand content or some other kind of content that it doesn't have enough 
plasticity in it to hold a shape and you know a lot of mud or soil can have a high degree of sand in it and that is not so good for holding its shape or um, having that kind of plasticity. And when I came over to your lovely home studio you're incredibly organized like everything is properly labeled and so I guess like all of your different clays is that a really important part of your practice is keeping everything organized so you know exactly how long you have to fire certain things certain clays and how they can work in a kiln well it's very nice that you say it was really organized because I never feel like it is really I was super impressed it seemed very organized (laughs) no I mean I always have like a sort of ton of containers that where I've just kind of you know thrown things in um with good intentions of like labeling it so that I remember and you know then I forget or I'm busy and I forget to do that for a while and and then I have to go back and really sort of wrap my brains to remember where I dug it or what it was you know but it is fairly important yes because well I guess partly just recording you know where something's come from also just to be able to go back to it when you want to use it again and have some idea when you are then testing it of the results that you're getting you know trying to record those results as well and keeping some order to that is really helpful when you want to make things and you just can't remember um well I can't remember everything and all the different materials that you might use or that you might be working with you can't remember that just off the top of your head so labeling does become quite important but I have a shed full even beyond my studio of containers that have particles in or minerals in and they might be things that I won't look at for quite a long time but I know that I want to just keep them and I want to remember where they've come from so yeah just get a bit strange (laughs) and then at the beginning of your answer you said about excavation sites and you kind of especially in London collect clay how do you negotiate that are they quite receptive and open to that Yeah, somebody was asking me that very recently because they wanted to do something similar. And and I was saying, and and this is what I've done, and obviously it doesn't always work, that if you do come across a site or somewhere that, you know, a hole has been dug, quite often I will just get chatting to people who are digging the hole. And if you explain to them, you know, what you're doing and who you are and why you would quite like a little bit and I'm not talking about like you know a wheelbarrow full I'm I'm sort of saying you know can I just take a trowel full to take away and test then there's usually a positive response obviously some people do give you a funny look and (laughs) think you're slightly odd but most of the time actually people are really interested and what it's sometimes nice just they start telling you about the area because they know it. Certainly when I was doing my residency at the Yanka studio in Newlyn in Cornwall, it was really nice because I had an open studio one day and lots of people came to see me and because they'd obviously taken some time to sort of look at what I was interested in and look at my website or, you know, learn a little bit about me. They were bringing me samples in just little plastic bags, um, samples of clay from their back garden, from their allotments. And uh, I really love that because they would tell me the sort of associated story behind, you know, the place where this clay came from. Um, Or they weren't sure if it was clay, but they thought it was clay. And so they were kind of bringing it to me to sort of, you know verify whether it was clay or not but that was so nice because it was just such a brilliant way of talking to people about my practice and about art in general and just learning a lot more about some of the 
local people there and the surrounding community so it's a great material to kind of initiate you know conversations with people I'm amazed that you can find clay around Thanet as well because it's all chalk isn't it so do you tend to go towards the coastal line yeah a lot of people say that and people assume that you know it's just chalk it's just chalk in Thanet and nothing else and that's you know just simply not the case if you walk along the coastline and you know sadly there's a lot of erosion obviously going on but you can see quite visibly the lines of strata and the the sort of geological strata that shows the different makeup of the ground beneath our feet, you know. And sometimes you can see seams of clay. And so, yeah, the coastline, river, riverbeds, but also there's quite a few woods around Thanet that have clay that you can find clay in so it's not difficult there's some very beautiful clay that I've dug from Sanfar Ho and that turned out to be a really really lovely clay to work with very soft and lots of plasticity so yeah it's quite surprising it really is and so lovely I mean like you know it must just be so (laughs) satisfying like you say, using your hands, digging it up and then taking it home and experimenting. I mean, what an exciting experience to have. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy that part of it. I think, as I say, I've I've kind of always enjoyed just being in the landscape and, you know, picking up rocks and things and just taking them home and looking at them more closely to see the makeup of them. And it is fascinating, you know, because quite often these are uh, minerals or rocks that have acquired the way they look now is as a result of like having been sat within a rock face for like hundreds millions of years and so what you're potentially looking at is time captured in those particles which for me is really fascinating I don't solely use my own dug clay because, you know, it is quite a lengthy process, processing it to make it workable. So I use other clays as well that have been processed already and make it slightly easier to use. And when I'm digging clay, I'm only taking as much as I need. I don't take great big amounts. Um, That's something that I say to people who want to do it just take what you need not great big amounts that are gonna disturb the surface too much or or have an impact on the environment in terms of where you're digging the surrounding landscape so yeah just being kind of conscientious of that well we spoke a little bit about your studio and the organization but you use a lot of abandoned glazes, pigments, powders and clay in your work. People gift these things to you and often you have no idea what they're giving you. You then experiment with them to work out what they are and you go on to use them in your work. And I just love the transient nature of this, that each of them has a very limited lifespan. Does this make you overly precious about them or do you use them quite freely? Yes, there is something very satisfying about receiving what other people abandon as waste and turning it into something. I do love the alchemy involved in working out what, you know, the materials are and what they might do or how they might work. It is exciting. I am a bit of a nerd in that sense. And I love the fact that other people think it's better to sort of pass them on to someone like me rather than just throw it away. I mean, yes, it does mean that sometimes I might seemingly spend a disproportionate amount of time working out what something is when it's only a very small amount. But I also like that idea of valuing something no matter how much it might be in quantity. I mean, I also learn a great deal from doing that. And it means I have to take care and pay attention 
And because there's an element of risk in this, before I've even begun to make work with it, I could get it wrong. And something I think is clay turns out to be some kind of glaze, again, that could seriously damage my kiln. So, yes, they can turn out to be precious, I guess, both because they do something that potentially works really beautifully, like a particular texture or a particular glassiness, but also because I don't have the information to replicate them. So I know I will only be able to use them maybe even only once or twice making work that will then never be repeated. It does mean that sometimes the materials dictate the direction I go in and I become sort of more like a custodian. It's a little bit like, I thought about this just recently, actually, it's a little bit like how museums are custodians of things from the past and the present, but have a need to make them relevant for the future. And that's definitely something that I think about a lot when I'm making work. And the fact that it might only be a very small quantity of something and the choices that I'm making and the decisions that I'm making in using that particular or that bit of material or whether it's a clay or a glaze. And I can't just rely on being able to produce it again. So, yeah, it's, it's something that I'm really interested in. You also said that often people will give you stuff in just jam jars that aren't labelled or anything and they have no idea where they got it from. Yep, absolutely. Or big bags that look a little bit like it's a big bag of dry clay, but actually it turns out to be a big bag of dry glaze. And, you know, they can all look quite similar sometimes, particularly because a lot of the materials that you're using for glazes for example are a white powder and dried porcelain clay for example can look very similar if it's been you know dried and crushed it's a white powder so you you don't necessarily know uh what the difference is and the only way to find out is to test them and the kind of key thing is introducing water to things like that, because as soon as you introduce water, it starts to react or break down and you then begin to kind of get a clue as to whether actually this is a clay or it's a glaze. So, yeah, it's I'm by no means an expert in the chemistry side of things so I've had to just kind of learn as I go along and hope for the best sometimes <laughs> <laughs> well I think that leads me very nicely on to my next question you're really interested in the Japanese concept of motenai which means the avoidance of waste and this came about after your residency in Japan can you explain the concept in a bit more detail and how you meld it into your practice yeah it's a term I find more in tune on an everyday level, I think, as opposed to, say, talking about sustainability, which in my mind is much more complex or um, difficult. There are, of course, really important decisions, uh, discussions, not decisions, well, dis decisions as well, actually, but discussions to be had around extraction and the meaning of extraction in the wider sense of wealth and the economy and power. But Montenay is a much more accessible concept and really applies to every day and everything. And it's part of the culture of Japanese lifestyle. And having spent some time in Japan, and, and I actually did one of my first residences in Tokyo, and it was so significant for me working out who I am as an artist and my values, the work I wanted to make. And the impact of that particular residency has stayed with me ever since. But for me, Moss and I applies to 
the way I work and thinking about how I work. So not only the practicalities of, say, recycling clay, recycling glazes, recycling water, and literally not throwing anything away, even the tiniest particles that I might have inadvertently created through making at the end of the day are kind of, you know, scattered across or on my studio floor or on my work table. I will save them and with the intention of reincorporating them into new work. It means that I don't actually buy a great deal in the way of materials and that kind of independence is very liberating um, when it comes to how you make work but it's also the idea of how you make and the time you spend making the work allowing things to sit with you and slowing down and really looking and listening and I'm particularly interested in listening actually we tend not to be very good at listening. You know, at school, we're taught to read and write and even how to talk, but we're not always taught how to listen, to listen to others, to listen to other points of view, to appreciate or recognise uncertainty. I mean, I don't want to get too philosophical, but, you know, we tend to put great stock in certainty and maybe because we we need or we want reassurance sometimes, but but we experience a lot of certainty from a hierarchical structure to the point of it being dogmatic. Whereas uncertainty, I think, can be a much more creative state of being. It really enables us to see another point of view. It enables us to imagine things or better ways of doing things. And embracing that uncertainty is okay. And that's something that I really try and incorporate in my work and in the way that I work and what I'm thinking about that. You know, it's okay to be uncertain about things and to try things that you potentially think aren't going to work. And that's fine. I really love that concept. <laughs> so you said that you even use the dust particles because on some of your artworks, there's like a fine sprinkling almost. Is that where you would use that? Yeah, yeah, sometimes. So I am sometimes, yes, kind of, um, you know, saving those small fragments and um, then reintroducing them to a piece of work that I am making. And I'm using different processes to do that. It, it might involve pressing or rolling or pinching um you know all these kind of different processes to reincorporate materials into another material or meld a material with another material and yeah again kind of particles that I will just sweep up at the end of the day and put them in a container and know that I will come back to it and use them in something. So I mentioned earlier that I came over to your gorgeous home studio and you told me how possibly controversially you were thinking about clay as a canvas. Can you tell me more about this? Yeah, well, someone said to me once, you can't treat clay like canvas. And at the time they were sort of trying to dissuade me from doing something in a certain way in my work and I sort of knew what they meant but it also stuck with me and I found it was a bit of a sweeping statement it felt like a way of holding me back and it really made me think about the time when I was working with a really really great mental health trust in East London and I was there all through the entirety of the pandemic where I was supporting individuals who were 
themselves incredibly creative and also were living with mental health challenges. And what I learned was the way people are disadvantaged by others' perception of them, um, telling them they can't do something. And what we did from within that trust was turn that around and, and focus on the whys of someone believing they couldn't do something. If, I think it really made me question every time someone says you can't do something, asking the question why, you know, what's what's stopping you? And I'm not talking about some kind of radical scepticism. I'm more interested in how it makes you feel. And I spoke with friends who are artists and specifically painters using canvas, asking them what thoughts they had about a blank canvas. And they said things like, I can quote, it being the start of a labyrinth journey whose conclusion is always slightly or wholly disappointing. It was something like that. <laughs> but the journey being quite a thrill or frustrating in equal measure, you know, or they talked about it projecting endless possibilities or even it being a part of them somehow waiting for love or abuse or pure joy and anguish, some kind of meditative building and as, as well as hopeless kind of destruction. And it was fascinating to me that they all talked about feelings as opposed to the technicalities of a blank canvas. And all of these feelings, I could totally identify with when I start making work. I mean, you know, some of the work I've made for Deadly Bloom is wool hung, which is generally more associated with, I think, other mediums such as canvas or paper. So, you know, it was very much a new venture for me. And it's really made me think about other possibilities less associated with traditional perception or idea of ceramic sculpture so yeah that's what I meant really when I said I was thinking about clay as a canvas and how I was thinking about it differently and it just really helped talking to friends who were artists and who are painters and to establish that actually it's not so different to you know working with clay and probably lots of other mediums so you're mostly self-taught and you've previously mentioned to me that there's an infinite amount to learn in ceramics do you still actively learn or have you reached a point where you're comfortable that you understand the fundamental techniques but embrace the serendipitous moments I think what I'm asking there is how much should you learn before you can unlearn and embrace play yeah, that is such an interesting question for me. I mean, firstly, I I never stop learning and I don't think I could ever stop learning. There is an infinite amount to learn when you work with such a volatile material that, that such as clay that really does have a life of its own. I'm often tell people that I'm teaching you know clay does have a memory and they kind of look at you as if like what are you talking about and actually it really does have a memory so you know if you push it into a certain shape and then you take it out of that shape it will remember that shape and it'll particularly once you expose it to heat it'll want to kind of return or, or try and kind of bend itself back into that shape just because of the way the particles work so it literally does have a memory you do I think have to have a certain bravado if you're going to teach yourself but bravado isn't simply enough and can also mean you make very expensive mistakes but yes I probably do understand the fundamentals now to to some extent at least but things change all the time there are a great many variables perhaps particularly with the way I work where I'm taking a lot of risks and materials change and evolve as resources run out as well so asking that question, how much 
should you learn before you can unlearn and embrace play is so pertinent because it's actually much harder to unlearn something and return to some kind of state of naivety or blissful ignorance you might say you know with ceramics there is a lot of things that can go wrong and you don't always have control maybe unlike some other mediums you can't always correct what might seem to be a technical area there is a lot of serendipity in working with clay and when those moments do occur it can be so thrilling even if it may only be you that understands why so yeah it's a really kind of pertinent question that I'm grappling with at the moment I think in terms of how much do you lose in the way that you work if you learn much more of the kind of technical side of things you do you know you do need that to a certain extent but undoubtedly I think it changes the way that you work perhaps yeah I don't know what's your space <laughs> because you are incredibly experimental I mean with your batch you often use things you have no idea how they're going to come out some of the works in Deadly Bloom you weren't sure how they were going to turn out if it was even going to work and I remember when we first started talking about your show, you said, right, I'm going to try some things. And I just don't know if they'll survive. Uh, but then you've also got that kind of real playful aspect. And I guess you have to put it in the kiln and you've kind of lost control of it, haven't you? Whatever happens in the kiln happens. Yeah, exactly. There is that point where if you are introducing, you know, it to the kiln, and because, of course, you don't necessarily have to but if you are you can't keep opening the kiln door and seeing what's happening and um, because you're talking about temperatures that are 1200 degrees centigrade so it, it was a little bit hot yes yeah. so <laughs> you've done everything that you can do up to that point and then you're putting it in the kiln you're firing it in the kiln and there is that again that degree of uncertainty which you don't have any control over and this is obviously specific to me but like thinking about the work that I made for liminal some of the work was for the wall which I haven't done before so other people who are perhaps way more experienced than me would have approached that in a different way or wouldn't see it as such a kind of challenge but for me it was a new thing to try and a new challenge. So I didn't have that certainty of how things were going to work. I love that. <laughs> well, thank goodness you do, Louise. <laughs> I know when you're working with, say, a painter, you know that the canvas is going to fit on the wall quite easily. As long as it can fit through the door, we're OK. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, when you're yeah. working on wall base for the first time. Then there's a hundred more technicalities that yeah. you have to think of. How is it going to sit on the wall? How is it even going to be attached to the wall? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, somebody at the private view did, did suggest Velcro. Oh my god! Next time, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I was explaining, actually, the way more complicated system that I had, you know, incorporated to to actually fix those pieces to the wall, <laughs> I was like. Yeah, okay, Velcro next time. I don't think so. <laughs> With breakable things, no, no Velcro would ever be strong enough to put my no, mind at ease. I don't think so. Oh, that would just uh, set my nerves on edge. <laughs> I think they would be a little bit cheeky. <laughs> How much of your work is planned? Because I know you work quite intuitively, but do you have a starting point and how often does that go off track? I don't tend to sketch things in advance because that would feel like I'm then simply trying to reproduce something that is 2D or that has kind of begun as 2D and transform it into something that is 3D. But I am, I think, sketching with the materials as I use them. And that tends to be the starting point. I do sometimes have a very 
clear set of images in my head, but nearly always those images evolve as I go along or when I introduce a new material and completely, you know, it completely changes. A lot of my work is made over quite a long period of time and sometimes goes through countless iterations, building up and then removing or even taking away. And there is this kind of dynamic tension between distraction and resolution almost. And always I'm pushing the work to the edge at the same time as being led by it. So there is this kind of constant battle. I do let pieces grow over, as I say, quite a long period, continually transforming and sometimes even abandoning them for a while. And there are certainly works that I have started and they've reached a point and then I have put them you know somewhere to the back of my studio and knowing that I will return to them but it might not be even as long as like a year later that I will return to that piece of work and suddenly it will become now I know what I'm going to do you know how am I going to continue with this piece of work or it will just feel right to return to that piece of work and use something different with it. I talk I talk a lot about freeing my mind from the kind of constraints of, say, a harmony or, or a, a correctness, which, you know, allows me to create with without inhibition. But at the same time, my work is knowingly flawed and very typically corrupted and imperfect so there's a lot going on there in terms of in my head I suppose how I'm thinking about a piece of work and what happens to it so my starting point is quite often you know I'm just again kind of playing with materials in my hands I'm maybe thinking about an idea or I'm thinking about something that I've observed or something that I've learned even or even a conversation that I've had with somebody. And then, you know, I will start kind of sketching with the material in my hand. So it's very immediate. It's amazing that you can go back to a work up to a year later that must be quite satisfying that at that time you didn't really know where to take it and then time passes different things are happening in the world in your life in other people's lives and then all of a sudden things just click into place yeah no you're right it is like a lot can happen in that time a lot of external factors you know it is absolutely that sometimes a case of returning to a piece of work and thinking right now is the time for this piece of work you know this is feels like the right time I do think your forms have a strong sense of life to them they're organic otherworldly and alien but somehow familiar often they look like they could scuttle across the room especially the works in deadly bloom patiently waiting for our eyes to leave them before they make their move would you consider your works figurative abstract or something else Ooh, that's a tricky one. Other people have described my work as having this sense of otherworldly beings. And I, I think that's almost inevitable because so much of it is I'm attempting to translate what I see and observe in humans and what I see and experience in the landscape. They are intertwined. They're, you know, inextricable from each other. So I think in all my work, I'm trying to give form to my emotions and continually asking myself how material becomes emotion and vice versa it's not figurative but it could be informed by what we understand to be the necessities of figurative observation and it's not purely abstract in the sense that I'm making aesthetic decisions based 
purely on the form or colour and how they go together. I think it is, however, totally informed by the materiality of its composition. I guess if it's anything, you could call it, I think I've just made this up now, um, feeling work. <laughs> I just, yes. I'll take it. I can't really, figurative work and abstract work certainly are things that I reference and look at but it's not quite either of those it is very much and I can only really describe it as like feeling work so I don't know if that makes any sense I think so that it's kind of emotionally led but then you're also led by the physicality of the medium yes those two things kind of combined they make feeling work yes <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and earlier you were saying about the temptation to have like a correct sense of form and that you try to corrupt that. The temptation to make something symmetrical. Is that something that you fight against? Because that's like something that's quite ingrained in me. Yeah, I mean, that's it's very interesting that you say that, Louise, because like probably in every other aspect of my life I like symmetry and some degree of you know order <laughs> but when it comes to making my work I'm in a completely different frame of mind and I cannot even when I've tried to say to myself okay I'm gonna like make this piece of work it's going to have some kind of symmetry to it that I get to a point where I'm like no that's just not me you know I just can't do that so it very quickly veers off and you know because like in many other aspects of my life I do like that kind of symmetry and I'm you know really interested in architecture and design and, and there is a lot of those kind of aspects in those kind of practices but yeah I just have a totally different again feeling when I'm making my own work and it's just too tempting I can't stop myself <laughs> yeah what can I say <laughs> I think that's why they're so surprising, especially with the freestanding work. When you get a full 360, you think, okay, well, it's going to look the same on this side as it does on this side. And you kind of go around and you're just so pleasantly surprised with what is around the corner. It's always unexpected, I think. That's nice that you say that. I think that's something that I appreciate and how and I like that, you know, other people sort of have that experience with it in deadly bloom there's a wall piece which acts as a living sculpture called reef you've used a colorant which will naturally change over time i haven't seen this used in ceramics before so can you tell me more about this idea how it came to be and whether you know the intricacies of it for example how quickly it's going to fade and what it will fade to yeah so it is something that i wanted to try because for me it represents a new way of thinking and working with clay it also reflects the idea behind that particular piece of work where I was thinking about the Great Barrier Reef which as you know I'm sure is the world's biggest single structure made by living organisms the Barrier Reef is composed and built of billions of tiny organisms we probably haven't got time to go into that too much, but coral bleaching describes the natural process where corals lose their vibrant colours and turn white. And it happens when corals are under stress because of some kind of environmental disturbance. And it's usually, you know, triggered by things like heat stress caused by rising water temperatures and radiation I mean there, there are other factors where it can occur as well and during the environment that kind of stress the corals kind of eject the algae which live inside them and give them their colour 
when the algae leaves, it becomes transparent. So the coral's tissues become transparent, which in effect is exposing their, their white skeleton and making them appear bleached. And I am thinking about this process, this phenomena, as an analogy to human state of being, the relationship humans have with nature, as well as the relationships humans have with each other when perhaps a mutually symbiotic relationship can become parasitic and one party benefits while the other is harmed. So there's this kind of eternal shifting of power. I'm also exploring the idea, I think, that viewers of the work have a slightly different experience. And I've done this before where I've shown work where things have been altered over the period of the exhibition. So somebody coming and seeing it on one day will see a slightly different version, a slightly different iteration of it if they come on another day. So I don't know how quickly it will fade and what it will fade to. So that is something that is new for me as well. But you know, it's like a lot of my work, it's kind of experimental and the result will mean I'll have an idea of how I might want to use that process again in in other work, depending on what happens with it. So I did a few tests with it, but not to the scale that it is at Liminal. So I don't know for certain what the end result will be and, and how quickly. But I'm okay with that. Me too. I love that. Good. (laughs) I love the experimental nature of your practice anyway, but then I feel like this is taking it to another level where we just don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. Don't know how it's going to change, how quickly. I mean, there's so many different variables. I don't get direct sunlight into the gallery, but then it is very bright because it's got very big windows. Whether that will slow it down speed it up who knows but I think that's really exciting and like you say that you can come and see it on the opening night and it's one color you can come and see it on a day that it closes at the end of October and it'll be a totally different color it might be potentially (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is so exciting but it's not the whole thing it's there's certain sections that are unfired and those are the bits that will potentially change exactly yes I am very excited to have an exclusive, a Liminal Gallery podcast exclusive, because you have given me permission to announce that you are going to be artist in residence at a museum next year. And you also have an incredible overseas residency coming up too. Are you allowed to divulge any details at this time? I can't say too much about them just yet, but at the museum, I am planning lots of projects over the 12-month period when I will be with them, including making a site-specific permanent piece of work, also curating a sculpture trail, which I'm particularly excited about, and also potentially bringing in other artists to work with the museum, partly as part of a knowledge sharing intention and also responding to the collections. I mean, I love working with museums and having the opportunity to, I guess, externalise through the many forms of clay, the rich creative resource that museums represent um, is something that I am very, very keen on. And the residency overseas, yes, it's an extraordinary opportunity for me, which will involve uh, me, hopefully, immersing myself in a different landscape, somewhere I've always wanted to spend time. And um, having a studio to work in with access to workshop facilities, I will be doing some teaching as well, which is great because that challenges me to learn new things. And of course, I'm hoping to try out some new things in the way I work. I'm a great believer of, you know, if you have these opportunities, there's absolutely no point in going and, and doing them and 
you are just making the same work that you could make in your studio where you're based you know what's the point of going somewhere where you get a new experience if you're going to do that so it's you know definitely an opportunity to try out new things in the way that I work so I'm really excited I can't wait for both these things it it is going to be a busy year (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say so the residency is next year god yeah you are going to have a busy year yes yes (laughs) yes you kind of mentioned earlier that you were really interested in museums anyway in the way that they are custodians of the past and the present but then also making that relevant for the future so that's really typical of your work as well I feel like you're kind of combining lots of time frames especially when you were saying about digging up clay and that's a particular moment in time and it just works with your practice so well doesn't it yes I think so and we'll see there are lots of projects that I'm planning with them so yeah it'll be really exciting fine I will share details when I'm allowed to (laughs) me too (laughs) great the questions that I ask everyone what do you enjoy most about your practice yes well making work takes time and concentration and patience and you can spend a great deal of time doing what you might call the background work a bit like building a bridge or a house that requires engineering to make it stand up and do the thing it's supposed to do do the thing you need it to do when actually you're so eager to get to the point when you can start to think about the additions or the detail you're going to incorporate to make that bridge or house have something to say that tantalizing moment when there is the promise of something wonderful when when something works unexpectedly and you feel you kind of have a visceral reaction I think we often can have that experience with music I know I do that can be all encompassing and quite emotional and thrilling and you can be lost in it and that's something that I I guess I strive for in my work because it's about not just looking at something but feeling something so you know the moments when uh, there is that possibility is something that I really enjoy about my practice there are lots of things that I do enjoy about my practice but yeah that is probably one of the things where you know you get the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because you think there is that sort of ah moment when you kind of think oh yes now I know where I'm going with this work and what do you find the most frustrating about your practice Well, I guess the usual things as an artist, like money, space, time, in the sense that working with clay requires time, you know, making, drying, firing, glazing, firing again, and you can't speed it up. But actually, for me, it does make me have to be more patient, which is a good thing. I think also... In terms of frustration, I think also finding platforms for your work can be frustrating. There are some really great artists out there who have helped make ceramic sculpture more visible, like Annetta Regal or Linda Sorman, Sam Lucas. But still, it's quite difficult, you know, to meet curators like yourself, Louise, who have a kind of vision and put their faith in artists and the work that they're making you know and not kind of solely focused on showing work that they know will sell commercially or be a kind of you know sure bet and you know ceramic sculpture in some ways is still a relatively new in the big scheme of things you know it's still a relatively new practice that you know making its way into spaces where it can be seen so yeah that is something that can be frustrating 
Yeah, especially in the fine art world, it was always kind of labelled as craft, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. And it's really only, like you say, in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively new in the fine art world. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there is, like I say, a lot of really interesting work out there. Yes. Um, And great artists who are working with clay and kind of helping to bring that to the forefront. But, you know, these things take time. We don't have time. (laughs) We don't have time. (laughs) We certainly don't. So is there anything else you'd like to say about your current solo exhibition, Deadly Bloom, at Liminal Gallery? Well, I guess... Just that, you know, it really offered me the opportunity for a new challenge, particularly, and I've talked about it already, making ceramic work for the wall, which is, you know, not something that I've done before. I'm happy you putting your faith in me and actually thinking about, you know, how that could work in the space. And, well, you know, as a curator, you have certain expectations of the artist to do what they're going to do and make the work. And it's the same the other way around, whereby as artists, we have expectations of the curator to do their job. And I think you work really incredibly hard to make things work at your end and look after the detail of the work's manifestation. And that's great. It allows me to do what I do best without having to think about all the other elements necessarily of putting on a show um I mean it's also my first solo show in Margate and the reception I've had and I've loved talking to new audiences about the work as well as the support of my peers and the new networks it's brought me closer to yeah has been you know really really good it's always good to work with curators who take a genuine interest in what you're trying to achieve and understand the blood sweat and tears it takes to produce something and the pressure that you tend to put yourself under as an artist without having any more kind of pressure put on you by other people or a curator so thank you Louise for being really really good to work with I've really enjoyed it that's so kind of you thank you I've loved it and it's been a pleasure I think that the work has really surprised me because I thought that you would be showing the freestanding sculpture thinking god how are we going to do this in the gallery because I've shown one freestanding sculpture in the gallery before and it was just so interesting to see how it changed the dynamic of the people that were actually coming into the gallery. All of a sudden they were so aware of their own body mass and like how much space they took up. And just, I felt like people weren't really able to enjoy the show because they were so nervous about knocking this thing over. And so (laughs) we discussed about putting the plinth in the window and I just think that's just worked so beautifully. And then obviously your wall-based sculptures because they're on the wall, people are a lot more receptive to it it works so beautifully in the space because obviously space is very limited in my gallery so (laughs) navigating that was really interesting I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to do that together and to kind of work it all out and to make it flow which I think it has and we haven't spoken about your paleontologist trees Isia O-E-S-I-A so which are the two sort of tube-like wall pieces and they kind of really reference the fossil worm tubes which are derived from a prehistoric sea worm which belonged to an animal group closely related to sea stars and sea cucumbers and this discovery of this particular fossil really unraveled the evolutionary story that links humans to starfish and worms and it wasn't really until as late as 2014 when a team of paleontologists from Britain and Canada made a finding that cemented a connection between the two fossils so that that particular team really concluded that the Isia belonged to an animal group closely related to the sea star and sea cucumber and so it is that connection between us as humans and something which 
has you know been around for millions of years before us and the freestanding pieces as well continue a, a notion or an idea that I have worked with before that reference the caddis fly which is a, a moth-like insect which lives on riverbeds and they protect themselves by building these distinctive cases from material actually that they find along the riverbed so like sticks and twigs and gravel bound together into cases using silk that the caddisfly larvae produce from their glands so they're literally kind of dragging this detritus from the river floor to encase themselves and it evokes this notion of appropriation of belongings to camouflage themselves or to fit in they're quite fascinating insects to look at so yeah so both of those works are looking at and referencing other living organisms that aren't so different to us as humans I love the idea of the caddis fly I mean they just sound <laughs> so fascinating I need to research into them immediately they do look amazing actually yeah yeah I mean they look like sculptures in their own right actually well that's all my questions so Julia Ellen Lancaster thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast it's been such a pleasure talking to you well and you too Louise thank you so much and yeah thank you for making it so easy and i'm looking forward to things going forward deadly bloom a solo exhibition by julia ellen lancaster continues until the 28th of october at liminal gallery at 34 fort hill in margate we have new opening times and are now open thursdays fridays and saturdays 11 until 4 p.m and outside of these times by appointment more information can be found on our website www liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to Liminal Gallery podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn, and I hope you'll join me down in Margate for our next exhibition, Liminal Salon, featuring all of the artists we've exhibited over the past year for a delightfully eclectic group exhibition. The private view is on the 4th of November from 5 until 8pm and all are welcome to join us. Our next podcast episode will be released in mid-November, featuring Mercedes Workman, who has an upcoming solo exhibition in the cupboard, opening on the 18th of November from 4 until 7pm. As always, all are welcome to join us. Bye for now.